Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When people are taught to change their behaviors or to admit their shortcomings, they use whatever means available to transfer blame for their sins to someone else. Almost always they lash out against the messenger, pointing to the hypocrisy of their teacher or explaining how a person's identity invalidates the message. In doing so, they shift everyone's attention away from the elephant in the room, the integrity of the message itself. Can a man accuse a woman of chauvinism? Can a German accuse a Jew of racism? Can a prophet teach his biological elders? Yes, definitely, but we claim otherwise to avoid accountability. The problem is amplified when people believe that they own the message or consider themselves familiar with its content. We've all met the Christian who, quote, already knows what the Bible says. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus comes face to face with this person in his hometown, among his own relatives, and in his own household. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 160 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We are moving on to chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark, and I am thankful for this text. I am thankful for the way it challenges us. Scripture is always humbling. There's two ways, really, of accepting that. One is to allow oneself to be humbled by it. Another, which is much more common is to use it to humble others and to show how others don't measure up. Scripture is constantly showing how human beings don't measure up. We can either see how we don't measure up or see how others don't measure up. The first is more difficult, but the mission of the Bible's Literature podcast is to continue to bring that word home so that people humble themselves not others. And that's one thing that is sorely lacking. And this is what we're trying to contribute to the horrible dialogue out there of one side shaming the other, whether it's this group or that group, it's the left shaming the right, the right shaming the left, the black shaming the white, the white shaming the black, whatever it is, we all need to accept our own shame. One of the beautiful things about the New Testament, which was produced by the Pauline school, is that Paul wasn't just any old Pharisee, he was a son of Benjamin. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, which means he was a very militant, very aggressive Pharisee. Now, in Galatians, he talks about how this was transformed through his reception of the gospel, the special letter sealed by God that invites the whole world to read what we call the Old Testament. But what's interesting is that Paul, as a writer, 
and as a preacher in the story of the New Testament, and Jesus in the story of the New Testament, continue to teach like Pharisees with authority. What's the point of this pedagogical approach in Scripture? It's twofold. Number one, the fact of the matter is, as our own teacher taught us about the prophecy of Isaiah, in Isaiah, arrogance on God looks beautiful because when God is arrogant, everyone around him on all sides of the aisle is subdued. It's a very important point. In other words, the Pharisaic style of preaching, which is to condemn the ones who are sitting in the assembly, is effective. And we've talked about how Paul used the Pharisaic style of preaching and adapted it to a Roman context, turning the tables on the paterfamilias in Roman society. But there's something else. For those like the characters at the beginning of chapter 6 in the Gospel of Mark, who dismiss the message on the basis of the messenger, the New Testament wants to make sure that those people aren't just condemned, but that their condemnation is sealed. Again, this is what we heard earlier in Mark about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The New Testament is telling you, you the addressee, you are the Pharisee. So when the one delivering this message functions as a Pharisee to you, you're being tested. When one hears a sermon or someone who speaks a word that condemns somebody, and one feels condemned and one feels the shame of one's condemnation, it's very easy then to lash out against the one who gave the sermon, who gave the word. It's very easy to lash out and try to shame that person by saying, where do you get off? Who are you to say something like that? Why do you have to be like this? Why do you have to be so cruel? And to go after that person rather than accepting our own judgment. Because let's say I have nothing to be ashamed about. Why then do I want to lash out at this person? But if I do have something to be ashamed about, then I get angry. What do I do when I'm angry? Rather than say, I guess it applies to me more than I would like. We say, who are you to say this word? It's so impossible to accept our own shame and our own judgment. This is why the Bible has to keep at it, because people will not accept their shame and accept their judgment. When they feel the shame, they need someone to absolve them of it. And sometimes if there's no one there to absolve them, they have to go after the one who caused them to feel the shame. What a self-righteous person does is use the personality or the identity of the messenger to dismiss the message. That is why Paul comes to you with a pedagogical staff. He comes to you in authority, as he says in 1 Corinthians, in power, in the power of the resurrected Lord, even though we've only been blessed with the first fruits of the resurrection. The Lord has not come yet. Because that power puts everything on the line. The Bible is a confrontation not with the world. The Bible is a confrontation with you, the addressee. Your ego. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. So, he's gone out into the world. He's crossed the Roman Sea. He's gone into the land of the Gerasenes. His word was preached to Decapolis. He was successful. He came back and demonstrated in the land of his own community that his father is God and has power over life and death. And now he's coming to his hometown. So he's already been successful in the world and now he's coming home. 
like someone who went away to college, worked in another city for a little while, and then eventually came back home. And now we're going to see how people who know him respond to the teaching. The word here, hometown, is patrice, which is patrimony. He came back to his patrimony, the place of his inheritance, so to speak, the place where he comes from. Because for the American, home is anywhere you hang your hat. Jesus could hang his hat anywhere, but Jesus is coming to his home. This is where Jesus comes from. Notice also, he's bringing disciples with him who are not from his patrimony. So his word has gone out, like you said, Father, even to these disciples. Now he's bringing his word into the place where he came from. Now you would expect that since Jesus is a Jew, that his patrimony would be the Torah. I mean, Mark has been emphasizing through Jesus's functional behavior in the text that he is a son of the commandment. As I've said, Mark is a big bar mitzvah for Jesus. That's how we know Jesus is the Messiah because he acts like a son of the commandment. So if he's a Jew, there should be no issue with what he's doing. He's coming back home and if his patrimony is what the people of Israel say it is, they should embrace the content of his message. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and the many listeners were astonished saying, where did this man get these things and what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? So they are surprised. And again, this surprise has a negative connotation because if Jesus is a son of Abraham and he's come to his hometown, to his patrimony, why would they be surprised at the content of the Torah? So right out of the gate, we see that from the perspective of Mark, the conflict that's brewing isn't really about Jesus. It's about the content of the Bible. He's literally coming back to his home parish and he's preaching a word that the people of his patrimony have never heard. That's why they're astonished. Where did he get it from? He is from here. We are from here. He has this wisdom. We don't have this wisdom. How is this possible? It's the nervousness of the people that Jesus is bringing something foreign. Because we had everything laid out in our synagogue. Everything was going smoothly in our synagogue. Everything was worked out. We figured it out. We were on the right track. And then one of our own comes in and starts speaking things that we've never heard before. Where does he get off? Where does he get the gumption to start saying things like this? We taught him how to read and write. We helped him when he was struggling in school. When something was wrong with his behavior, we corrected it. This is the kid we raised. What could he possibly be saying that we don't know? Because we produced him. That's the arrogance. It's almost as if there's envy. Why does he have this wisdom and we don't? He's got these disciples and we don't. I sense here envy from the people in the synagogue who are hearing his word. Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. What's amazing is that he's doing the work of the teaching. And they admittedly recognize that the work of the teaching is astonishing. But their response is to say, who does he think he is? We know this guy. He's one of us. Where does he get off telling us? Why do they have to talk about his genealogy? What is interesting about his DNA and his relationship with other people? 
here we have a translation and they took offense at him they were scandalized by him well good they were scandalized by him this means that he revealed their shame but what was their response instead of saying oh my goodness i had no idea of how rotten i was thank god for this word that came to us even from one of our own instead they say who is this guy we know his brothers and sisters his brothers and sisters are no big deal we know his mother his mother's not such a big deal his dad's a carpenter so why would we think he's impressive like you said father they were already astonished and scandalized so the teaching was doing its work jesus was talking earlier the parable of the soil jesus has gone to the synagogue he is taught he is spreading his seed but what's interesting is even his own patrimony is poor soil where the seed can't find any root and this is the confrontation between the seed of god's instruction and the human seed this is where the rubber hits the road with respect to god's commandment to procreate in genesis yes he's commanding you to procreate because it is his will that there be life on earth but he is also demanding that you procreate with the Torah so that that life can be preserved and cared for. What happens in Israel in the New Testament is the same thing that happens in Israel in the Old Testament. They fall in the trap of imagining that the seed is their seed. And they fall in the trap of imagining that it matters who Jesus' dad is. And the New Testament pulls a fast one because it does matter who the father of Jesus is insofar as the father of Jesus is not one of you and not just one of the people of Israel. He's not human. So that is the function of the conception of Jesus is that it deconstructs human genealogy, which is what God does in Genesis. He commands you to procreate and then he spends the rest of the book making fun of your genealogies. And that's what Mark is doing here. And, you know, one of the ways that you and I, Father, talk about when reading the Bible as literature is really understanding the different layers of how to read this. So on the one layer of the story, Jesus is in the synagogue in his patrimony talking to the other people who won't accept his teaching. And we know that the teaching was the seed that he was trying to spread and it's not taking root. If we take it a layer up, and kind of look at it metaphorically, and we look at Paul's struggle. Paul's struggle is that he wanted to save the Jews through this teaching of Jesus Christ. And because they were his people, yet they wouldn't accept the word, and so he went out to the Gentiles. So we can see that the struggle of Paul is being represented here by Jesus trying to spread the word in his patrimony among his own people, and it won't take root. That's clearly what's happening. And, of course, Father Paul Tarazi published a famous work years ago when we were still in school. It was a commentary on Mark, but the title of the text was Paul and Mark. And what we've learned since then studying Scripture is that these connections are rampant throughout the New Testament, that there's something systemic and systematic going on with these connections. And with respect to Paul specifically and Pharisaism, Because Paul has been rejected, because Jesus has been rejected by their own people, they are taking the stand of the prophets and saying, okay, fine, you want to reject the teaching? 
seeing you won't see and hearing you won't hear and God will harden your heart the way he hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that you are condemned for your own sake and that is why Paul is so harsh and so bombastic because since you're not going to listen anyways he might as well make sure it's clear that you're committing apostasy because then there's a better chance that you'll repent. And not just for your sake, but also for the next generation who can see what happens to those who don't listen. If Paul comes to you and coddles you, which is the way people typically teach, not only is he condemning you and himself, he's condemning future generations. If there's not an aspect of shame in the teaching, it's not going to shake you up. Shame is a very powerful force for teaching. And guess what? Although Paul hopes that you'll repent of your apostasy and realize that by condemning Paul as being arrogant or being wrong or being a Pharisee or being corrupted, if you repent because you see how terrible that is, praise the Lord. But if you don't, but others are saved because of your folly, praise the Lord. This is what Paul is saying in Romans about his own people. Yes, my people were given the Torah as a gift, but it was given to them to make an example out of them for the sake of others. If they then try to make out of the Torah their own glory, I'm still going to twist that around and make sure that everybody else knows they're stumbling so that the original mission of the teaching will be fulfilled, which is that all the nations would gather around the bread on the table of the Lord to receive wisdom. If my people go along with it, praise the Lord. If they don't, it's not like they weren't given ample opportunity. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his own relatives, and in his own household. So here, it is zeroing in from patrimony to blood relatives to the actual place where you hang your hat. It's a big thing. So you cannot take this as a proverb that you can extract from the text and you can say to someone, oh, well, you shouldn't expect your family to listen to you because a prophet's not welcome. Jesus did say that. No, you can't say that. Because what Jesus is doing is condemning his family for not welcoming him. Because they, of all people, should know better what the teaching says. And they don't because they use the Torah to glorify themselves instead of receiving it as the mechanism of their own crucifixion. This reminds me of the English proverb, familiarity breeds contempt. The more you know something, the more you think you know the thing, and the more you think you know the thing, the less you listen to it. It's called blindness. It's called blindness, but interestingly, it's also like knowing enough to be dangerous, right? And to me, when I think of that, it relates to the problem of the scribes and the Pharisees who know the law so well that they cease to be shamed by it. This is the danger of being the insider. When you're on the inside, you no longer feel the sting and the shame of being an outsider. And when people say, Jesus was crucified so we don't have to be, well, when you don't have to be crucified, it's because you don't deserve it anymore because you want to say that the law doesn't apply to you anymore. Therefore, you can no longer be judged. And you can quote all kinds of biblical quotes in order to make that statement. But the problem is, Scripture is 
trying to wound you deeply in order to deflate your ego so you no longer inflict your self-righteousness and your self-victimization onto others in order to cause them shame. So much of what happens in the world, whether it's the right shaming the left, the left shaming the right, the native versus the refugee, the refugee versus the imperialist, it doesn't matter. One is always trying to shame the other. And here, among the people born with you, the people who share your genealogy, who are your relatives, the people of your own household, those are the people who are closest to you, and therefore they feel that they already understand. So if they feel that they already understand, they can't be taught. And when the shame comes that would teach them, they already are unteachable. They're hard ground and no root can penetrate them. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So he could do some works of kindness, which is his own obedience to the Father's will. But he made no progress as a teacher. We already know that the healings are secondary. We've been talking about that the entire time. He is perfectly capable of healing, but that's not what he's there for. He's there in order to spread the seed of the teaching. He's here. He couldn't spread a single seed. Well, he spread the seed, but not a single seed took root. So he can do the second best, which is heal a couple people and then move on. And he wondered at their unbelief. And here, unbelief, apistia, means their lack of trust, their lack of faith. It's the same thing over and over again. They are so untrusting of the word of the Father that they cannot accept that a teenager named Jeremiah is the Lord's prophet. They cannot accept that their nephew or their son or their cousin, Jesus, is the Lord's messenger. Here we have how he wondered at their unbelief. And above, Mark says that many listeners were astonished. Now, this is not the same word in Greek, just like it's not the same word in English. But on the one hand, the listeners were astonished at hearing this wisdom, although they didn't allow it to convict them. And he wondered at their unbelief. So one could say, wait a second, where does Jesus get off? We know that the people were condemned for being astonished, but not listening or not caring. So shouldn't we use the same yardstick against Jesus and say, hey, what's he doing wondering at their unbelief? Where does he get off thinking like this? Where does he get off talking like this? But this is how the evil enters into our heart. Jesus is allowed to wonder at their unbelief in a way that the people are not allowed to be astonished at the teaching because the teaching is the reference. It's based on their reaction and their inability to allow themselves to be humbled, allow their ego to be deflated, that they had a problem. And he wondered their inability to trust in this word and to trust the shame that it brought upon them. And he was going around the villages teaching. He continued back on the path he was on before. He took a stopover in his patrimony and then went back to the villages where he was before because it ends up that the villages, which is the country, the outsiders, show more promise than the people inside the patrimony. It's not that Jesus is wandering, but he is. He's going around. There's nothing deliberate about where he's going. He's just seen his father's teaching summarily rejected in his own home. 
And so suddenly, because he's linked to the teaching of God, that is his purpose. That is who Jesus is, the minister of his father's teaching. Because that teaching has been rejected, he's been rejected. It's reminiscent of the people rejecting God and asking for David as their king. They don't want God as their king, and so therefore they reject Jesus as though Jesus is trying to be their king. And he's dejected and abandoned, essentially, and just wandering around preaching. I'm going to go find anybody who listen anywhere. That's the power of the mashal. God invites people to his banquet in the parable of the kingdom in Matthew. And they don't come, so he says, go invite everybody. That's what Jesus is doing, which again points back to your comment about Paul and his rejection and going out to the nations. But what's interesting about the coherence of the biblical tradition is that the whole point of the Old Testament is that the Old Testament be carried to the nations. What Paul is showing you is that God is using Israel's sin to carry the Torah to the Gentiles. Thanks very much, Dr. Benson. Thank you very much, Father. Have a great week. Thanks, you too. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.